The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Episode 27. Holy crap, here we are, episode 27. The Cinematography Podcast, episode 27. Thank you all so much for tuning into episode 27, and what an episode 27 we have for you. I can't even, can't even begin to tell you the places you're about to go. Yeah, we're going to go some places, for sure. So, uh, before we get to that, Ilya, how you doing? Yeah, I'm doing okay. How are you? Good. I was trying to tee up uh, that you just came back from an awesome uh, convention. I did. I came back from Camera Image, is the correct pronunciation, even though you'll hear most people say Camera Image, which is, sounds very uh, pretentious, and it's a little bit pretentious, but it's also in Bydgosz, Poland, which is, uh, you know, working class and not exactly what you think of when you think of, like, you know, fancy film festival in Europe. Super communist block looking, I'm hoping. Yeah, there's definitely some of that, for sure. But uh, it is the only... Sp- film festival uh, dedicated to cinematography and the cinematographers are the people who are celebrated there over the directors over stars they are uh, they do all the Q&A's and uh, for the cinematography community it's really quite a thing it's it's pretty amazing and uh, I, I will tell you there were multiple people there who kept saying oh yeah it's like it's one year away from being not cool anymore like one year away before this becomes <laughs> Sundance and everyone shows up here and it's, Hipsters. It, it's not a thing so, oh, man. but uh, yeah so it's a little bit underground right now but it's uh, not really they've been doing it for 20 something years it's kind of it's it's amazing and you get a lot of uh, you know amazing conversations and amazing parties and uh, it's Poland where somewhere I'd never been in November uh, my my wife has tried many times to dissuade me from going by just saying the words Poland in November, and it's true it's cold. But this you, year you just talked me out of yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it, uh, this year was warm in that it was at the uh, you know high forties, high forties while I was there mostly. That's the, not too bad. Yeah, but the last day there dropped to like thirty three, which is Sundance is worse than that. Sundance is worse than that. Uh, but there have been years where it's snowing at Camera Image, so uh, so thankfully this was not one of those years. Do you need to speak Polish to get around? Definitely not. It is uh, very, very English friendly there. Oh, sweet. And and how did you find Poland in general? Uh, the portions of food was amazing. The people were incredibly friendly. And uh, your money as a Westerner goes really far. So it's a kind of an amazing uh, place to travel. Uh, but I think you kind of got to know what you're getting into. It is definitely sort of like Eastern European, um, you know, culture shock. I think I'd enjoy the architecture. There is some fun architecture there. Maybe I'll uh, stick a picture in the uh, show notes. You totally should. Maybe uh, one of these years I'll try and go to that when I don't have a six-month-old child. Ben, who's on the show today? Uh, Who's on the show today is honestly one of our great dream uh, people to have on the show. It's Shane Hurlbut. Shane Hurlbut, who, uh, as, as we said before, we played his epic war story which i think we're both still listening to as i'm describing it yeah you just wait his interview is even more epic um but when when <laughs> what, what what you know what i said was uh when you and i had first talked about doing a podcast about cinematography we had taken lydia hurlbut his wife and manager out to lunch and kind of pitched her on the idea and she seemed way into it and that was like 2006 i want to say yeah it was like 
10 years ago, at least. It was so, a while ago. Yeah. And, uh, and so he was, he was somebody. And also I want to say, uh, th- this, this spoils nothing. Total class act brought mm. us wine and cheese. Yeah. The first uh, person we've interviewed to bring us wine and cheese. And let me, let me just throw this out there to all future interviewees. Yeah. Uh, you want to get on our good side. Yeah. Yeah. Br- bring, bring something to nosh on. I'm looking, uh, on. I'm looking at you, Walt Lloyd. <laughs> I mean, uh, certainly Charles Papper didn't bring anything that classy with him. More shout outs for Charles. All right, great. Yeah. We're never going to hear the end of this. <laughs> okay, so uh, ladies and gentlemen, Shane Hurlbut. Strap in Shane Hurlbut. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Shane Hurlbut, thank you so much for uh, coming here to the Cinematography Podcast. Thank you so much for uh, for having me on here. I want to jump right in and talk. We're going to talk about your background and education and all that stuff. But I kind of want to start with probably what a lot of our listeners are going to want to hear you talk about first, which is the DSLR revolution, which I would say you were one of the generals of. And like suddenly everything changed for independent filmmakers. So (laughs) how much responsibility weighed on you when you when you started uh, realizing like, holy crap, I can change everything. What was that like? Well, I, I think it really came down to, for me, I was always, I mean, I love film. I had shot 18 movies probably on on a 35 millimeter film. And for me in that sense, it had always been this very huge beast that we had to kind of, you know, quell. It's like, how are we <laughs> going to move this thing? And how are we going to perpetuate the motion? And how can this device continue to move with a character uniquely and everything? And, and trust me, I mean, so many movies have been done with film that are absolutely magical. There's, I'm not taking anything away from that. But the mass moving business changed with the DSLR revolution. Mm-hmm. We were not moving mass of 40 or 60 pounds. We were moving mass of 2.5 pounds. And how did that make you feel? And then at the same time, you quantitate it to economics because now your economics are, okay, let's say if I had to shoot on 35 millimeter film and I had to process it and make a whole movie, what was that going to cost? Now, all of a sudden, somebody could buy a 5D, get a CF card, go on Adobe, Premiere Pro, edit in his garage, use some Pro Tools or Audition, do your sound design, get some band to write a score, and you got a movie. Yeah. And that was very powerful. And I didn't really see it until I started to be in it, how amazing, really kind of deconstructing this camera because it had tons of quirks and it wasn't, it was a still camera. It wasn't a motion camera, but it had this motion sensor that could, uh, you know, create HD video. And when I started to use it and when I started to see the depth of field, it looked unlike any of the video cameras that were out there, two-third chip-wise, Sony, all these other oh, things yeah. that were trying to create. This was a full-frame sensor. This was a sensor that had really shallow depth of field, and it had it had everything that now the Airy 65 and the Red Monstro and all these had aspired to be yeah, yeah. during that time. It was a full frame sensor shooting HD video with a great color space. And 
it started to give people a voice that never really had a voice. And that's what I thought was so powerful from this. And the reason I ended up using the 5D is not to ignite a revolution. It was because it was the best for the story. And it was the best for the economics of what I was asked to deliver. I was asked to deliver a movie that had to be shot under $5 million that had to shoot action sequences with night stalker helicopters coming in, boats slung from them, fast roping down, getting in there, going down, minigunning the shit out of like all these bad guys, <laughs> rescuing this, you know, CIA operative, getting her in a boat and tailing off down the river. And I had to do that with five individuals. Wow. Five. That's it. So it's like what my ask was, I literally systematically went through the cameras that were available uh, at the time, and that seemed to just call, uh, it just like a spotlight came up on the 5D. I think that I was introduced to the 5D Mark II at an ASC wine and cheese function. So I remember pulling into the parking lot down in Hollywood and uh, meandering my way all the wooden steps all the way up to the fourth floor. And uh, they had a model and they had some seamless there. And uh, what just flew off the screen for me was the depth of field. I was like, whoa, this is nothing that I had seen in any of uh, the chip sizes that we had been dealing with with the two-third and one-third chip cameras at that point. And it had a very three-dimensional quality to it. And I just started playing around with it and the menu seemed very easy and user-friendly and didn't have 40 different sub-menus to go down the rabbit holes. And I was like, wow. And then Mick G called me literally a week later and he goes, Shane, I want you to direct this weird like alternative marketing campaign we're calling it techcom and it's uh nine cliffhangers up to the release of terminator salvation and my assistant is kind of writing the scripts and all and uh we i'd love for you to direct it and i was like well that sounds really cool and i read the script and it all centered around a helmet cam And this person who was engaged with the camera was literally, you know, talking to it like he was trying to talk to the the uh, resistance uh, to his headquarters and that he's trying to, you know, they're going to get through this stronghold and they're going to get to uh, the base and he's doing everything he can to stop them. And I thought, oh, my God, if I mount that a camera on a helmet or I just have somebody hold it in their hand, this is going to look so immersive. I even remember like uh, Scott Billups uh, had done this thing for David Lynch where he'd shot on the PD-150 or something and he wanted to make it heavier. So he'd like cut a big piece of lead that he mounted the, the PD-150 to so that it was heavy and harder to move around so it would be more cinematic. But but the DSLR thing is the opposite. It's it's using its lightness as an advantage. Exactly, and that's what we tried to do with Active Valor. You know, so out of the Terminator thing, I was asked to uh, Campfire Media was the creative behind it all. My good friend Mike Manello have to give him a shout out. <laughs> Mike Manello is the owner of Camp or the main guy of Campfire. Yes, Media. and Bandito Brothers was contracted to do all the editorial on it. 
So I came on as the director cameraman and uh, we did the nine part series and uh, my assistant Poe Chan, who had done a lot of movies with me too, also helped uh, direct. So we were kind of co-directors on it. And uh, she did like a lot of the casting and all the wardrobe. And, you know, we we work very well together in in that kind of way. I take care of a lot of the visuals. She takes care of like the acting and the emotion and and all the the wardrobe, hair, makeup, all that kind of stuff. And we were doing it at Bandito Brothers. They saw the quality that I got out of that Canon 5D. And they're like, they took me into their conference room. And their conference room was a army tent in the middle of a barrel warehouse in that flat iron complex, uh, the iron complex down in Culver City. Black iron, I think it's called. And they said, Shane, we have this very interesting movie. We're going to follow real Navy SEALs. Uh, We have a narrative film and we'd like you to shoot it. And I'm like, what the hell is this thing? Like a documentary? I mean, what are we doing with these guys? No, no, no. It's a narrative piece that has been written around the SEALs training missions for two years. I'm like, Navy SEALs acting. I don't know. (laughs) I I still don't know. (laughs) I was like, all right, how about if I'll shoot the first three days of it and see how it goes. So we went down to Key West and we did what they call a Mio, where it's a maritime intradition operation or something. And it's where the seals hit a yacht from the air and the sea. And uh, we had three days to shoot it in. And then there was this massive... uh, interrogation on board where they try to get information out of this guy that they have sequestered. And I immediately started to relate with these SEALs, see how amazing warriors these guys were. Uh, Their families came down. I mean, it was like a really unique experience. And the biggest takeaway from that is it was the first time I felt like I went back to true filmmaking Mm -hmm. because our footprint was so small. Were you filming this whole thing? Oh, yeah, filming this Uh whole thing. And you were doing it on the 5D at the time? Yeah, 5D, eight cameras. Mm -hmm. And what was so amazing about it was that I felt so in tune with the whole process because our crew was so small that I had to be... I was the travel coordinator on Active Valor. I booked all the hotel rooms. Oh, wow. I booked all the flights. I did all that because that's all we had. We only had six or or eight people as the core. The directors, Mouse McCoy and Scott Waugh, they not only directed, but they also were the camera operators as well. A lot of time, my first ACs were operating. You know, everyone was just all in on this film. And it real. I was the gaffer. I was the key grip sometimes. I, I mean, so much 
uh, innovation came out of this film of of having to take the camera and uh, I went to Panavision and I was like, I don't want to shoot on all this Canon glass. I want to shoot with Panavision glass. Can you make a mount, a Panavision mount that can go onto these cameras? Were they able to? Yeah. So they made, uh, so we had, you know, 18 DSLRs with all Panavision mounts and we were using Primos the whole time to shoot it. And this is where I'll never forget there was one shot where I had my Canon 5D onto a three to one Primo zoom. So the Primo zoom is like two and a half feet long and all there is is this (laughs) this sensor hanging off the back of it. And I looked at that and I go, that is going to be the future right there. You're gonna basically be clipping on a sensor to this lens and we're gonna be moving this thing around. Amazing. And maybe this is a little bit outside the realm of cinematography, but so what was it like directing or getting performances out of Navy SEALs? How much were they asked to actually perform, like memorize script pages? And they were asked to memorize all that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it was a narrative film. And uh, they would we would uh, we had a a great writer that uh, that wrote the whole screenplay. And then we asked them, how would they say it? Yeah. And then they would break it down and say, I would never say this. This is what I would say. And we're like, okay. And then another thing that we wanted to do is break down the whole filmmaking process. Think about it. If you're uh, a Navy SEAL that's sitting there, you know, killing bad guys all over the world, the last thing you want is a big ass Panavision film camera with sound and lights and all this yeah. stuff around you. It kind of sucks the air out of their performance. Exactly. They're, they're like in the moment, right? Yeah. They're not going to be, they're not trained you know, professionally to be around all this stuff and somebody's around or whatever. So what we wanted to do is strip it all down, make it as small as possible, make it as compact, make it as minimal amount of crew as we could. And that's where their performance started to come alive because they felt very comfortable. And both Scott Waugh and Mouse McCoy made them incredibly comfortable. And then our small little team just continued to work just like a Navy SEAL team. Oh, wow. So how many people total were on this crew? Because, I mean, it's like at this point in your career, you're working on crews with hundreds of people on them. Oh, yeah. I mean, Terminator Salvation, just lighting grip camera. Uh, department and pre-rigs, I had 127 people just working for my department. So, and was this the next thing you had done after Terminator Salvation? So it's a crew of what, eight? Eight or 10. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like summer camp, right? Oh, I mean, that's what was so inspiring about it. I mean, literally we are driving down to Key West and Scotty Waugh is driving and we had mobile offices is what we called them. I had my 400 watt booster that I would jam into the cigarette lighter that enabled my computer. And I got my hot spot and we're jamming down the road and we're shot listing the whole beginning of this Mio sequence. And I'm talking about, you know, not just shot listing and oh, we got an over, over this there. We're talking about transitions where I'm coming up out of water. I got a, you know, Pete Zuccarini that did, you know, Into the Blue for me and uh, Terminator Salvation. I have him on full on lock in the water with me as well. And we're dealing with transitions. I'm pink highlighting the transition shots, how we're going to take this whole thing down. And we're doing this while we're driving uh, to Key West. And 
it was so inspiring because the, the we had one producer on on the thing and we had uh, some great liaisons from DOD and mm. they really paved the way for us. I mean, when it was all said and done, this movie was made and the government didn't even know that we made it. Really? Like they were on duty seals? Yeah, on duty seals. Whoa. And we're like making this film that was basically a, an anthem, like kind of top gun for special forces. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was so, it was kind of crazy because you, you uh, sit back and step away from the whole experience. And this film took two and a half years to make. I started in 2009. And the innovation of the 5D. You know, everyone's like, yeah, you show you shot that thing on the 24 frame. I'm like, what? There's no 24 frame. I remember dude. you had to use. It was 30 frames. You, I had, you had to do the Twixter. Twix, yeah. yeah, the Twixter pull down <laughs> and all that. that stuff. Oh, man. You know, it, I remember I almost got into uh, and I got into a big argument with a guy from Canon who uh, swore to me the 5D could never be retimed. The chip couldn't be retimed to 24 frames per second it would always be 30 and maybe they would have a 24 frame one and it was like it was this is at the dga at digital days and then like two months later they came out with the 24p you know and i was like you know like that was the one thing like why did you make it 30 frames well in the middle of act of valor i get asked by canon they're like you know i know you've been wanting 24 frames shane we got the 24p firmware update we want a short film shot around this so I turned to my, you know, a very good friend and my assistant, Po Chan, and I said, write me a short film that will show the power of this DSLR. Mm -hmm. And she, in 24 hours, wrote the last three minutes. And we sent that to Canon and, you know, Lydia, my, my wife, uh, produced this whole thing. We, we were making it with popsicle sticks and uh, <laughs> gaffers tape because they didn't have much money to spend on it and bandito was like uh, behind it to help us out and uh, we shot a lot of it in bandito brothers and then we got some locations around but that that's when all that i had learned on act of valor i funneled into that and I made the DSLR look even better on that film than I had on Act of Valor because I learned so much through that because it was an absolute learning process. So I'm, I'm turning this camera on. The thing is literally three months in the field. Yeah, Nobody's using it as a, as a motion capture. They're using it as a still camera. So I'm like figuring it out. I'm like trying to, why is this thing so contrasty? What if we go into the menu and reduce the contrast and sharpness? And then I started creating my own picture profiles. You know, we weren't going with what was there, you know, portrait and landscape yeah. and all that stuff. We were trying to, you know, really trailblaze this technology. Yeah, and and, and like the form factor of so many cameras has, has become like that, you know, like Blackmagic's cameras and stuff like that. But I always feel like a lot of them lost sort of the initial, uh, maybe it was a sugar rush of the DSLR of like, oh my God, I can afford this. Like Canon followed that by releasing great cameras like the C500 or whatnot, but like suddenly they were priced to rent again. They were they were out of the realm of, of you know, an average schmo's ability to, to buy them. And also like if you're doing a smaller production, 
I mean, I don't know. Active Valor, something in, in the neighborhood of a $5 million movie, you can afford to, to trash a bunch of those cameras if you want to. But still, you, you know, the, the it's going to take a little bit more uh, in, intestinal fortitude to trash a $15,000 camera than a than a no, $1,500 camera. But so so Active Valor, you didn't shoot it all in a row. It was it was the shoot was broken up or. Yeah, it was like doing 50 commercials. Mm -hmm. Uh, We would say, okay, we're going to do the Key West portion of this Mio takedown. We'd shoot that for three days. Then we'd come back to Los Angeles. Then we're like, okay, now we're going to go down and shoot on an aircraft carrier and shoot that for a week. And then we come back and then we're like, okay, now we're going to go to Costa Rica and we're going to shoot uh, this whole CIA agent being captured uh, along the river, and you know we're going to stage that whole thing. And, and this we is over back. the course of like what two years? You said two and a half years. Wow. Yeah. So I mean, like, how did you even like keep the continuity of what you were doing in your head for two and a half? I mean, like, I'm sure no. you're working on other projects in that two and a half year period. Yeah, it was very difficult, but at the same time, I saw. I mean, this is when. Lydia and I started the blog in 2009, mm-hmm. the Hurl blog, and that started to pull in so much sharing from uh, all over the world because this revolution was not in the United States, it was global. And they started telling me, you know, sharing knowledge, the tests that they had done, and they set the camera at this specific function and try this out. And then I would literally, because Active Valor was broken up, I got better and better at it. And when we got to Kiev, Ukraine, we had dropped all film because we always kept the film there. So if something, you know, if we weren't getting the DSLR in the pocket, we could always punt to the film. Yeah. And when we got to Kiev, and I'd say that's day 20 out of 45 on the movie, I was full DSLR. I, I felt so confident with everything that all these wonderful people globally had shared with me and kind of helped me through this process, as well as then what Lydia and I started to voice out and share all over the world. So it wasn't just, you know, me getting it and then saying, oh, <laughs> I got my secret. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> you know, this is amazing. This is what I've learned, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's not like, I mean, like, yeah, somebody could, could take what you did and do it themselves, but they're, it's not going to look the same. It's not no, going to be They're not the going to be me. Exactly. But at least let's, you know, set them up for success. So, but uh, I, I want to talk a little bit to, again, we don't, we try not to not get too deep into the tech, but just the fact of what you had to deal with turning 30 frames into 24 frames. And I kind of interrupted you. Talk about how that impacted the workflow or how you had to go about doing what you were doing. Well, I mean... The workflow on the film was very unique. We had, I think at the height, we had 18 bodies that we were working with. And we had those in all different configurations. This is something that I had learned on Into the Blue. Uh, On Into the Blue, I shot that on film in 2003 with 14 cameras. So I had four in underwater housings. I had one on a techno crane. I had one on an aqua housing on a foxy crane that I could submerge and come up out. I had two in handheld mode. I had two in studio mode and I had one on a steady cam. Yeah. So that kind of idea where just think about when you're on the ocean, you don't all that time of 
converting a body is wasted. And also you're on seas that are going up and down. And so everything had to be already kind of there. So you used them like guns on a rack. And, you know, it's time for the shotgun. Uh, It's time for the AK-47. It's time (laughs) for the, you know, Smith & Wesson 45. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So those guns on a rack, I did the same methodology on Active Valor. And we had, you know, two handheld rigs that were just Zeiss, two handheld rigs that were just Panavision Primos. We had helmet cams. We had it on uh, techno cranes. It's so funny. We had 5Ds on techno cranes. You know, it's like all this stuff. Yeah. I would love to (laughs) see a picture of that. (laughs) You know, all this was kind of, you know, put together on this film. And the workflow was literally grab that CF card, download it. And we had this really incredibly intelligent post-production guy named Mike McCarthy. And we called Bandito Brothers uh, like second story in this barrel warehouse, the Millennial Falcon. Uh Okay. So this Millennium Falcon was a, he took iBook drives and he daisy chained 120 of them together. And he created 120 terabytes out of daisy chained iBook drives. Wow. Today you'd just be like, I'm going to go to Fry's and get the 120 terabyte drive. <laughs> it's, a, it's a thumb drive. <laughs> exactly. But in 2009, that didn't yeah. exist. I know. And so they were editing all this and we shot the culmination of something like uh, 3.5 million feet of film. Uh, on this film yeah. in digital on the CF card. That's how much we we were shooting on it. Uh, I mean, it was just 18 cameras rolling and sometimes they were rolling for a long period of time because this was the first film since 1921 that actually used live fire. So yeah, we're that's, like, that's what I've always heard. And to me, that always just sounds bananas. <laughs> we There's a great behind the scenes thing where the director goes, Scotty Waugh goes, we have more live ammo than blanks. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, but seriously, so you were you were shooting live ammo at cameras and like, didn't you have like custom housing that you built so that it would protect the CF card even if it d- demolished the camera? Exactly. So we we took all this was the the perfect like. Uh, a send-off of film. Uh, we took 435 mag cases mm-hmm. and used them for our crash housings. <laughs> and we cut the holes out of them <laughs> to be able to put the lens in there. We completely blanketed the whole thing with half-inch steel. And we just, there was, there was a sequence where the swick boats come in and they spin around and they fire their mini guns and it's like 2100 rounds a minute and we said the first time you come in shoot over the cameras and i had the uh the crash housings all painted fluorescent orange so they could see them Mm -hmm. so i said when you come in you know the first thing you do is shoot over the cameras that's like we're you know shooting at the bad guys in the deep and they're like, yeah, got it. Second time you come in, you shoot in front of the cameras. So all the dirt kicks up and shoots and all the spray from the water and all that dirt flies in the lens. They're like, got it. I said, that turn, third time you come around the corner, all you do is lay in on that camera. Just blow <laughs> that shit up. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and we'd pull these things. You did out the same of- exact thing on Crazy Beautiful, I'm sure. <laughs> I've, I've heard all about that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was so hilarious because we'd we'd crack open the 435 mag case, and the 5D would just be exploded into like 12 parts with a you know 50 caliber round, and there the CF card would be hanging off to the side, and we'd pop it out, we'd put it right in the thing, and bam, we had that footage. And it the was, cinematography podcast, by the way, is brought to you by Ari. So uh, thank you, Ari, for making the 435 mags that uh, withstood bullets on active hour <laughs> and literally did nothing else. <laughs> That's funny as hell. <laughs> That's crazy. Okay. And the other thing that we did, which was so awesome, is I had this one French operator. And he was a painter at the same time. So he painted the 435s in camo perfect camo to blend into the Costa Rican Costa Rican rainforest. So we literally had these things because we put them in harm's way. I mean, okay, let me kind of set this one up for you. And I don't know if I've ever told my wife this and she's sitting right here. So she's going to freak shaking out. Her head. Podcast listeners, she's shaking her head right now. Okay. So imagine this setup. We have a Navy SEAL with an RPG. Not a fake one, a real one. Now, where am I? I'm the A camera. I'm behind the guy who is going to yell out, missile out, or no, rocket out, and that missile is going to fly past the camera. What? And blow up the truck behind me, okay? (laughs) So... (laughs) Now, back behind me is nine cameras, some some uh, 35 millimeter slow-mo, some 5Ds that's capturing this whole thing. Now, the truck behind me is being driven remote control. So there's nobody driving that. Okay. But the two so, Navy SEALs... So nobody's in danger in that thing. Okay, go on. Yes. No, nobody's in danger good, in that. Good, good, good. I'm glad I'm no one was in danger. I'm the only one, along with the Navy SEALs, that's endangered with the 40 Mike Mike missile that's flying past our truck. Now, I turn to the Navy SEAL and I go, is this safe? And he goes, would my guy kill us? And I go... Yeah, you're right. This is saving shit. I love it. So, of course, I'm driving in this thing, and I'm over the shoulder, and this thing comes, and the sound was something that I've never heard in my life. It was a rocket being propelled at like 400 miles an hour. It's like a jet engine next to the head. And he goes, rocket out. And that goes by. And all of a sudden I hold with him and then I pan back as that thing blows up. And then I pan back to him and he goes, this is good shit. (laughs) I was like, this movie is crazy. I mean, and this was every day on this film. I was every day you were like, okay, let me get this straight. I'm going to be in the A camera car that they shoot the rocket at. Yeah, you're going to be fine. Wow. What? It's the all war story episode. (laughs) No, not actual war. Wow, that's that's bananas. (laughs) Yeah. That's outrageous. Yeah, I mean the the whole movie was uh, 
we go into a nuclear sub at Key West and we can't just go to the dry dock in Georgia and shoot this three-page scene. We couldn't do anything like that. We had to go on the mission. So they were going to the Horn of Africa to kill some Somalis. That was their mission. Mm -hmm. And we just happened to tag along on the way. And okay, so (laughs) you gotta imagine how we have to load onto the sub. They can only breach for 45 seconds because they are then found on radar and they can be compromised. So we're, we have all our gear in these little cricks, they call them. They're eight feet long inflatable boats with a little 50cc motor on it. And we have been given a coordinate out in the middle of the ocean. And we're like, you know, we were just in there and I'm like operating the camera and I'm going over the shoulder and I'm trying to get the shot and like, and all of a sudden out of the depths, this thing goes booge out of the the ocean and then lays on its, uh, it, it puts its front up and lays its back. And we go whoosh right up onto the, the nuclear sub with these cricks. We grab all our camera gear, they open the portal, we throw them down, and then we get as many people in there as possible for the 45 seconds, they close that portal and they go back under the ocean. So now there's other two more cricks out there. And now they have to hit it again. So they we go for another hour and we're waiting for where it's gonna be. And then we, we move to that place and then the thing pops out of the water again. It took us three times. 345 seconds is all we had wow. to get all the gear that we then went under the uh, Atlantic. And then two and a half days later, we popped up at the Horn of Africa. Now I'm like, Okay, let me get this straight. How fast does this thing go? Well, that's confidential. <laughs> I was like, I can do math. I can I, find out I how far these two. This thing's doing over three hundred miles an hour underwater. <laughs> underwater, right? They said they get into the jet stream, and uh, you know that's quote on the jet stream underwater yeah. with the currents and everything, and this thing just is like a missile. And uh, then we did that. And while on the way, we shot this whole four page dialogue scene and then we were done. And then we're like, okay, can we go back? And they're like, no. So we were on there for like 12 days uh, on this sub. And uh, I have to say it was an incredible experience. I mean, I kind of, after the eight days, I'm like, all right, let's get me off this thing. It's gotta be enough. but. But I mean, like very, very few people have ever made, you know, a movie that kind of was completed as as a regular feature film, but was made in such an unconventional method. What did it feel like to just be like saying like uh, the rule book that I learned in college that I've been doing my whole life? Fuck it. I'm doing this a completely different way. Exactly. And that's what was so inspiring. And so it just fueled all my passion mm-hmm. because I felt like I was. I, you know, I, I have this saying that anytime you feel comfortable, you got to flip yourself. Mm-hmm. You, you, you cannot feel comfortable. You got to challenge yourself to always be doing something different. And this was something that really challenged me as a filmmaker. It was not only trying to demystify the tech, 
It was taking the demystification of that tech and then using it to propel the story. And once I started to figure it out and once I cracked that egg, I think on like day 20 of really understanding that device and really getting the best out of it could ever be be gotten, that's when I really felt I was just firing on 12 cylinders. And we really, it, this is where we really started to, to, to crank and, and I felt so confident with it. And then my confidence started to create a ripple effect throughout all the team. And they knew that my recipe and my picture profiles and everything would save them. And they felt more confident and what they were operating and they could be more aggressive and they could push themselves out of the comfort zone. And it just really uh, culminated to a great uh, project. And I think a really cool film. And uh, so why don't we see more like DSLR movies getting made and seen in theaters or doing and and just nobody draws any attention to them yeah i don't know uh because there was like that there was the silent house and i'm trying to think of any other like that were like all five there was a we were talking about it earlier uh tiny furniture lena dunham's first feature right and gail tattersall shot a an episode of uh of house of house with it i remember watching that episode of house and being like this is actually one of the best looking episodes of house ever like it just looked and i'm sure it's because of that giant sensor on that thing yeah it looked it it just looked different and and i think that's what we're always kind of aspiring to is like how can we make it different how can we how can the difference help that story and how can it apply uh and take the performance and take this the script and how can that all elevate the product you know and i thought the the 5d was just the perfect tool to tell that story especially in the footprint that we had to operate on yeah i mean they literally say there's six people on a sub that's it that's all you have i mean like you couldn't have done that with any other camera especially at the time they all would have been like you know two feet long and weighed 30 pounds exactly how many times would i had to compromise the sub to get all that gear on there 10 times (laughs) they told us we only had two and they gave us one more because the sound mixer didn't get on (laughs) (laughs) so with, with all that in mind, I kind of want to go to the question that I ask everybody, which I don't even know where to, where I have. I always have a thought of where where this is going to go. But uh, I, I believe that cinematographers either when they're given a script, they either start with an idea and they as they're reading the script, they're seeing compositions in their head or they're seeing how it's going to look lighting wise in their head. Where do you start? Because I feel like your stuff, especially active valor on forward but like your stuff has such a there's such a kineticism to so much of it need for speed etc cetera, etc cetera. so wh- where when you're reading a script what's occurring to you well i read the script probably four or five times before i even jot down a note before i even come up with an image i want to know it so well that i'm like oh yeah it's the scene at uh Aaron Paul's garage where this guy confronts him and blah, blah, blah. I I just know it. Uh, Mm. So it's just like a shorthand to me. And then then once I get that shorthand, I can then start to see the, the film come alive. And the first thing I do is I create what I call the look document. Before I come up with shots, before I come up with anything, I just sit there and each scene I think about it on how it will look like 
in light. Yeah. Uh, the, so it's light. <laughs> it's light. Ah, it's the texture. It starts with the light. It starts with the light. It starts with light, folks. And then the motion comes on it. Then, then that layer comes. Then I, then I start to come into the shots and how the camera will feel and how. So first, it's the light, and that light is is centered around the emotion of the story. Mm-hmm. Whether they're sad, whether they're scared, whether you know wh- whether they're alone. You know what what is the emotion of that scene? Then I describe it very viscerally. Uh, you know, it's not just uh, you know. Light comes through a window. It's like, you know, late morning shafts come through the window. There's cyan undertones into the shadows. Uh, As he walks through, the light plays across his face. You know, it's like, it's very descriptive. Mm -hmm. And then off of that, then I stand back and go, okay, what's the keyframe of every scene? What one shot is going to deliver the whole emotional impact of that scene. And then I build off of that. Interesting. So when you're working with directors, like you've worked with Mick G a bunch, right? So when you're working with directors, um, do you come in and pitch those ideas to the director? Does the director come in and give you boards that you're to work off? I mean, I'm sure it's everything and anything. Yeah, it's it's different every single time. But like, uh, so is this just a reference for you so that you can kind of internalize? Yeah, it's a reference for me to when I hear how he's pitching a scene or how she's pitching a scene, I'll say, but what about this? So I always have that... I'm always a springboard, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where he can say, yeah, we're going to do it this way. Da, 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 da. I'm like, yeah, but a uh, classic example, Crazy Beautiful, a scene where Kirsten Dunst gets sent away to a turnabout ranch and somewhere in Idaho, and she has to come in and clean out her locker in the photo you know, media room. And Jay Hernandez comes in there. Well, the original way it was written and how John Stockwell wanted to do it was she was at the locker, Jay Hernandez comes in, walks over and they have a conversation. And when I read that scene, I saw the keyframe of her on her knees behind this light box, you know, where you see your negatives and everything mm-hmm. from. And when he comes in, she turns on her knees and all you see is her head on a platter. That's the keyframe. The fragility, the damaged, all this stuff yeah. conveyed in that one frame told the whole story of that scene. And he's like, that's a, that's a great idea. All right, let's, Kirsten, do you mind going down on your knees? She's like, no, that sounds cool. And she's, you know, she starts laying out all these negatives and everything and she's picking them up and then he comes in and then she gets up and they have this conversation. Well, these are the things that I try to be that springboard of, you know, kind of putting the director's hat on and say, what about this idea? Yeah. I I don't necessarily have to, you know, I, I don't get pissed off in any way if they don't select it. It's just that I want to have a point of view. 
And I think it's very important for director of photographies to have their point of view and to be there to really kind of not make their movie, uh, but come up with ideas that then enhance the story. And, and together, once they start seeing the springboard, the directors start to pull push off of it and, and then it becomes very collaborative. This last film I did in Italy called uh, No Place Like Home with uh, Gabriel Muccino, he works very differently. He comes with the script that he wrote with the whole shot list embedded in it. Mm-hmm. So, and his shot list, one shot could be four and a half pages. Really? The description of it. Oh, I was about to say like, yeah. everything is done for four and a half pages, page long wonders or? or? Yes. Okay. And he describes how they move and where they go. And I mean, it's incredible. It's like, a, it's a, just a ballet uh, of actors. And we had 19 or 21 ensemble cast of like the biggest stars in Italy on this thing. And he would weave them in like a ballet. It was incredible. And, you know, so that's how he works. Uh, each director is is very unique. And so, so let me ask you: when you're working yeah. on something like that, uh, where the director has an outrageously specific vision of exactly how everything is is to work, uh, what's what's the creative uh, angle that you bring to it? You're not there to just execute somebody else's idea. If he wanted to do that, he'd hire a gaffer and a camera operator. What is it that you're bringing to that? To that? So, what I bring is the how the camera is going to feel. Okay, so is it steady cam? Is it going to be handheld? Is it going to be Movi? Is it going to be on a crane? What what does that camera want to feel like? What what's the the emotion that's going on in the scene right now? And then how can I take that uh, that much higher? And then it's also the lighting side of it. You know, what's the light feel like? We we had this film where. In the movie, you had this very colorful and very happy and very open and airy kind of feel in the beginning of this film. And then the the skeletons in the closet start to come out with this family and the mood changes and the, the home that looked so light and airy before becomes cavernous. And this was kind of that approach. So my assistance with all this was really kind of taking each scene that he had described so beautifully in his shot list and then creating a look on that and then creating how that light was going to feel within these the emotion of the characters and obviously to contrast that with something like active valor like you're just lucky to point a camera at at, at a guy with a with an rpg and get a usable image <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we had beautiful compositions yeah. and everything that was no, it's set a up. Go- it's a gorgeous movie. To me, that's that. like when you talk about this this insane process. And obviously, you know, I, I feel like that's, you know, you could give away all of your secrets. No one's going to walk away and have your eye for how you shot that because you were able to find, I'm assuming, mostly on the fly, these outrageous compositions that, that are impactful and appropriate and gritty and, you know, like nothing. Correct. N- nobody's, yeah. nobody's ever made a military movie like that since. Yeah, and I, I thought what what I loved about the experience more than anything is we were all in it together and we were all learning together. Uh, we were learning how to step away from moving a camera that used to be 40 or 60 pounds and needed all this crew and all this peripheral yeah. around it. And we 
basically brought it down to something that you could hold in your hands, that would record in your hands, that you could pull focus in your hands, that you could see an exposure in your hands. You know, you didn't use light meters, you didn't use anything, all, all that, all that film was gauged off of the LCD screen in the back. That's crazy. Nothing was done off of monitors. There was none of that tech. It was literally all, and if I was on the yacht where I had all this, it was a white yacht that was like 140 feet long. The white sun was bouncing off of it. You know, you could barely see the exposure in there. Yeah. Uh, And you just went with it. And that's what was so ballsy about the film is we just, we were fearless. We were a bunch of fearless filmmakers that just went down that rabbit hole and came out the other side and just said, here it is. So when you're working on a film such as the one that you just worked on, which sounds like a very uh, specifically crafted, specifically moving, specifically lit, like kind of the stuff you were doing before you were doing Act of Valor, uh, what lessons from that kind, from the Act of valor stuff that you have done did you bring to that project? Like how... How different is that movie today than if you had done it in 2005 or something? I think I think the influence is just much more uh, being in the moment. Mm-hmm. Act of Valor was so much by the seat of my pants because we, we would literally never know what was gonna happen. One day they said, we're gonna go in this nuclear sub and then they said the sub broke. So then we're like, all right, we're going to Kentucky and we're shooting this action sequence with Night Stalker helicopters and this thing. And I'm like, well, my camera package is really not gauged for that. Whatever, that's where we're going. Fuck it. You know, know, we're going there. So then all of a sudden we're there and I'm like, well, Jesus, I got like this 600, you know, it's like, we need longer lenses. We can't get close to these Night Stalkers. All I have is primes. So then we had to get all that rushed in and stuff, but it was very fly by the seat of your pants. And that's what I am bringing on to something that is very well crafted, like Gabriel Muccino's film. I, uh, I think the biggest thing that I can say that I took away from this experience and why he loves using me is because I light for three cameras like I'm lighting for one. Mm-hmm. And for him, that's where the performance shines. Because he says he's been in an edit room where he doesn't shoot it that way. And the person use, moves their head this way and they can't use that over the shoulder because in this angle, his head's not turned that way. Yeah. And the performance that would rock the audience out is thrown on the cutting room floor because it's just never gonna match. It's gonna look like a mistake. So we ended up shooting this movie with three cameras all the time. Now think about lighting that. Lighting very intimate sequences where two people are sitting in beds pushed up against a wall where all I have is a practical. And how I'm lighting the perfect 50-50 and the over and the over and this woman has to look like absolutely stunningly beautiful. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you got a big wide shot where you gotta create mood. 
and the light can't be all super soft for this close-up on her because that super soft light's gonna blast all over and ruin all my contrast in the wide shot. So I really started to come up with a way that I could light three cameras really beautifully, and that's what just engaged that engine for me and Gabriel Muccino to really rock it out. Because now he was getting the performance, he could cut it, and check this out. We did this film. I finished November 20th. He had the final cut done December 15th. What? Okay. Well, they were obviously cutting it while you were shooting. We were cutting it while we were shooting it. That's still nuts. But we're talking a three weeks director's cut. That's how well that film was crafted. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think it was just, it was a testament to my undying passion to just make it look great all the time and not settle for when they said, Shane, we don't have the time for this. We cannot uh, do this right now. We're over budget and everything. And I'm like, guys, you, you know, you brought me in from the United States to deliver this look. And this is the look that we have to, to, to uh, hold on to. And, you know, Gabrielli would like, just let's do it. Let's do it. And, you know, the accuracy, I was able to color correct the movie in three days. The whole I mean, movie. The whole movie. And it has like, oh my God, it's so many different locations and so many, because it's, it's three days and two nights. So there's all different types of, you know, interiors. We're jumping around the horn. My God, we're in 50 different rooms. And and these shots that we do, it's like the kind of shot where we go over the shoulder of uh, this these two love interests and we round and we come pow, uh, come around and we see her. And then he's like, you know, motions to like, hey, come with me. And she looks over at her daughter that this guy is not the husband. And he kind of goes away and the camera lurks around her and you start to see the wheels on in her mind and the camera just holds and wraps around her and she's looking at her daughter and she's looking, my God, I'm in love with this guy. And she releases and we rack focus and you see him you know, move into the this hallway, and she. Then we go around her, and we follow her down the hallway. This is all a wonder. All wonder, and then we see him at the base of a spiral staircase, and they start to go up, and we go up the spiral staircase with them, and we go into a room, and as we come up the spiral staircase, I have a 18k on the roof of this other, uh, of the part of the house that flares the lens just perfectly. And as they come around, we follow them in and they open up the door and we go into the door. And as we go into the door, I have an electrician outside that then pans the 18K, so it flares me in that room. And as it flares me in that room, I wrap around and they start uh, kissing and they go down on the bed and he starts to take her clothes off and he's ripping her pants off and everything. And then she pulls away from him and we wrap around and we go out the door and we, she has this look on her face where, I mean, it's the emotion of so much love. She's just like in the heat of it. She's like, ah, and we go wrap around and he pins her up against the wall. And then all of a sudden you hear a scream and they separate from the wall and it's her daughter. 
and the daughter screams and she runs to her and the camera goes with her uh, to thing. And then the guy runs and we follow him down the staircase and he starts to wind down the staircase and we whip the camera around as she's screaming in the camera. And then they push down the hallway and go into the door and slam the door in our face. Okay, so when you're working on a film like No Place Like Home, which, as you're talking about, the director, Gabrielli, came in with these outrageously detailed, description, meticulously designed shots. What is What are the lessons that you bring from something like Act of Valor, which I think most people would not even think of those two movies in the same universe? Like, they're not, they're not in the same cinematic language. But there must be something that you brought from your experience for, on Act of Valor into working on a movie like that that is, like, the opposite when it comes to how it looks. Well, I think, you know, Gabrielli and I, we're like two brothers from other mothers. I've never been so connected with this guy, uh, just emotionally, uh, you know, the look, what what he, he can, he, before he even says it, I'm doing it. Oh, cool. And that's what I really loved about our collaboration because we, I read the script and I'm immediately starting to put the look together. And then he goes, so where are you going with this? And I'm like, this is where I want it to be very light and airy and da, 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 da. And he goes, okay, yeah. And then we're gonna go for this cavernous, okay, cool. And I said, when I read this script, I, I read this as mice in a maze. And he goes, what are you talking about? I said, everything is, if we could rip the roof off of this house, and see all the characters move with all in the spaces to see that one of this reaction creates an action, this action creates a reaction and that reaction sends this person over here. And then they that reaction creates another action and that action creates another reaction. You see all these mice in a maze and he goes, Yes, that's that's what I how what I envision it, and that's why I started to come up with these, you know, one shots that you just you can't even breathe, and that's where you know when I started to feel like this, a lot of that Navy SEAL, uh, you know, training that I had on active valor because a lot of the the shots that we did with the helmet cam and everything were these oneers where I had to light very like from all different places where you couldn't see it because the thing was on a 15 millimeter lens and he's tilting up and he's tilting down, he's panning right, he's panning left. So with that, I had to come up with this style to light sequences that would feel like it was lit, you know, beautifully, uh, like it was, okay, we're gonna light for this direction, then we're gonna turn the camera over here, we're gonna light for that direction, then we're gonna turn the camera over here, we're gonna light for this direction. But this camera never stops moving and never stops spinning. Yeah. And that's where you have to, I use like the, the kind of uh, shoot from the hip style because when you see it and when you read it, it's, you're not sure you're gonna be able to pull it off. And Gabrielli would start to set up the scene and he'd rehearse with the actors for like 45 minutes to an hour. And in the beginning, I'm just watching. And then as I start to see the performance and I start to see, okay, they're gonna gravitate here and gravitate there. Then I start to send my team to do stuff on the peripheral. Mm -hmm. So, okay, uh, they're going out there. All right, well, Jesus, we gotta control that. So fly that black overhead so we can create some neg fill. Anything that's not going to be where they're creating, all from the peripheral. Yeah, yeah. Because 
our schedule was like six or seven, nine pages a day on this film. So it's like, holy crap. So I'm, two shots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. So, you know, with that, you're like, okay, so how can I keep up with this pace? Oh, and this is the other thing. In Italy, it's only a nine hour day and they get an hour lunch. So it's only an eight hour day. And they come back super drunk, right? Yeah. No, 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 no wine. I was hoping for it. Just a lot of espresso. So, you know, we would do all this and I'd start to do all this peripheral lighting. And then he would say, okay, Shane, let, let's put the steady cam up and let's do the rehearsal. And then on the rehearsal, I'd be at my monitor and I'd start to see the finesse of it. And okay, oh, it's going too dark there. Or is this too light? Got to take that out. And then at that point, he'd say, all right, how long? And it's like, at that point, I'm like, all right, uh, 20 minutes or 15 minutes. Or, you know, there was one that was a five minute shot that I had done enough on the peripheral the whole time. He said, all right, how long, Shane? And I go, five minutes. And he goes, what? <laughs> you know, and it was this four minute wonder that they were inside, outside, in rooms, outside, you know, all over the place. And I had just had, a, you know, with Gabrielli, it's all about the pre-rig. It's all about being able to put all the lights in places where you can just pan them and move them. Uh, and we weren't on a stage. We were in uh, this massive villa uh -huh. and I had this incredible uh, rigger, Cesar, this key grip that was able to, because I thought, you know, working in the States, if I have to suspend a big rig, they always go to the production designer. Ah, can you give me a, a you know a drape in the corner here? Can you give me a soffit over here? And I always learn like, well, that kind of doesn't work with the architecture and all that stuff. But Jesus, I want this rig, and that's to hide the the foot, yeah, the pipe, right? Well, with these guys, they suspended everything. Everything was, was it just all, like a like a grid, like a theater. Uh, yeah, but it was all pushed with pressure up against the walls with like spreaders. Yeah, but <laughs> spreaders that he would camber across forty feet. Camber? And, That's a, I've never heard that word before. Yeah, camber is when you bend the rail. Oh wow! Right. So when you put weight on it, it straightens. It's oh. the kind of thing where you going down the road and you see those flatbed 18 wheelers that don't have a load and they have that arch to them. That's camber. I just learned a new word. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm going to use it. That's awesome. So so to me, this is what's crazy because that was Ilya and I have talked about having a, a segment that we call anatomy of a shot because, you know, everyone's got some crazy ass shot that took forever to pull off. But it sounds like you had a movie full of them in this but the craziest thing about what you're what you're saying to me or the thing that's kind of blowing my mind is that you're doing these touch of evil style sequences or or uh yeah children of men not you know unbroken things but you're kind of making it up on you're not making it up but you're inventing it you're choreographing it on the day correct you're figuring it out on the day because it has to work around the 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 actors blocking and the the actor's blocking and has to work them out what, what's going on with the weather. You know, we would have some times where we'd have, uh, you know, extreme weather on this island. I mean, we were in this, this amazing volcanic island in the middle of the, you know, Mediterranean Sea. So it's like, you know, you're, you're uh, at 
the mercy of Mother Nature saying, okay, we're going to dump rain today. And it was like, well, but this scene takes place in the sunny, airy, bright, and like, you know, so now I got to create that. So it's like, okay, it's raining outside, but how can I bring 18Ks of light into, you know, a very challenged budget? I was using roofs to elevate my my lights. You know, Gabrielli came up with this very intense crane shot where he wanted to start from a fish being taken off a grill and we start with the fish and we go over the dad who's preparing it and then we start to go top down as the mom takes the fish and we start to go up and boom up and we go to 20 you know to 10 to 20 to 30 to 40 feet high and we reveal the whole villa top and we see the kids running in from the garden and all the the kids coming in you know the family coming together and we swing over uh top down on this beautiful dining room table and she drops the fish off and then she starts to walk towards the swimming pool and we boom down and move with her into a 50 50 into the pool well, when you see this backyard, you're like, what, how can I do that? So the first thing I do is I go, okay, let's go to the roof. So I go to the roof and I uh, have the engineer who owns the house is there who built it. And he goes, I go, can I put a, you know, two or a half, three ton crane on top of here and be able to dolly it along the roof and everything? He's like, yeah, that should hold. So then we, you know, should. literally put this, you know, 35 foot <laughs> stick of track and this two and a half ton crane and we're, you know, doing this shot and it all comes alive, you know, based on him describing the vision and then it's my job to like block it in a way that I can then use the limited budget to be able to pull it off. Wow. That's incredible. <laughs> when does that film come out? Is, is it it gonna... came out in Italy. Uh, it's coming to the States uh, in uh, I think June or July, but you can, you can uh, it's called a Casa Tutta Bene in, uh, in Italy and it did very well. It was released around uh, Valentine's day. Wow. And so nine pages of that every day, though, that's. Yeah. I mean, it really does. It does sound a lot like <laughs> it does sound like Children of Men or Touch of Evil. Just but also. So when you're talking about how how you've kind of developed a, an ability to light from light for three cameras at the same time, if someone was listening to this and was like, how can I do it? I have I have a similar issue. Like, what are the things that I don't I don't know. You, I know you can't explain to someone how to be able to light in every situation for three cameras. But what are the things that you're thinking about? Like, how do you come up with a workable scheme to to do that so that so that every camera looks good? That's always a problem. And, you know, like you always hear like Quentin Tarantino will only shoot with one camera. Well, obviously, you'll be able to control everything with one camera. How do you get one camera's worth of control out of three at the same time? Exactly. And Gabrielli's whole reason for doing this is it's all driven on emotion. So he's trying to get the best performance out of the actors all in, at one time. I'll never forget on Fathers and Daughters with uh, Octavia Spencer and Amanda Seyfried. And we did the scene where she came in and uh, Octavia Spencer was uh, like this head of a social service and, and Amanda Seyfried was a therapist. And we do this oneer where we take them down a hallway we hinge into this doorway, we walk in with them. I hand the movie off to a grip who sits on an apple box. As he's sitting on an apple box, another movie comes out from a closet 
and positions over the shoulder of Amanda to Octavia Spencer. And then a dolly pops out of a broom closet with another movie mounted on it, all set up, dollies across the hardwood floors and does this beautiful push in on Amanda Seyfried as she realizes that she only has one week left to to get this child to speak or uh, Octavia is going to rip her. Mm-hmm. from from this kid and she's really felt like she's gonna be able to to get to her and and uh unlock her and this octavia we did three takes and uh gabrielli comes in and he goes okay we got that and she's like okay what is that device that's the first thing she said to me. About the movie? Yeah. And I said, well, it's this movie. It's Gyro Samuel. She goes, why is every film not using this? I feel so alive. I feel like I can be with the performance. I'm not, you know, we, we just move with it and everything. And then we did the next scene very much the same way. And then we wrapped them at noon. Mm-hmm. And she's like... I can't wait to come back tomorrow. <laughs> it was just that kind of atmosphere, you know? And I, I had the same thing on uh, Into the Badlands. When I was working with Martin Kozaks, he came up to me and he goes, Shane, I've never felt so alive uh, as a performer. This movie, the way you're moving it, and we just feel like this is all just happening. It's just, it's, I never felt this before. And this is where it really started to, I'm on to something here. Not only did the Act of Valor thing where I was doing this very raw and handheld and intimate with the Navy SEALs, now I'm taking another device that's much more on a drama-based center. So it's not all handheld and rickety and all that kind of stuff. It's like moving the camera in a very elegant way, but it's building the drama and the characters feel like they can be, you know, uh, very open and, and feel like they're on stage. And that's what really, uh started to generate great performances you know i try what i try to do is this filmmaking is art and science you have to demystify the science for the director so he just feels like he's creating art Mm -hmm. and my job is to take that science bottle it all up control it understand the pros and cons of it the quirkiness what's going to fail and try to have a backup plan what's what if it does all fail what's your plan b c and d and really kind of let him or her just breathe and just really you know go in there with just not worrying about anything and then i take by demystifying and going inside the science and the tech i try to see how that tech can take the story higher. And then I deliver that to him or her, whoever the director is, and say, okay, if we're able to to use this device, this is going to create, you know, like I told him with Amanda Seyfried, I said, think about this character. This character has no foundation. Her dad died at eight years old. She was put into a foster home. She was raised, then she was raised by her evil aunt in a very dysfunctional house. She came out not knowing love. I said, that camera should not be locked off. It should not be, it's gotta be unsettled. It feel, it, it's her, her base is sand, mm-hmm. right? And when I started to see how the movie looked, it wasn't floaty, 
like a, you know, a steady cam looks awesome, but I'm just saying that it can be floaty if you want it to be. Yeah. But the movie had kind of this, you know, because this was before Clausen rigs, this was before ready rigs, this was before uh, anti gravity. This was literally us holding the movie for four and a half minutes while they delivered their performance mm-hmm. and my hands would start to shake. I and, know that's, and, that was my biggest problem when I first saw a movie. I'm like, who's going to hold this, uh, this thing in front of them all day long. Exactly. So we got this thing called the ab blaster, which was this, you know, thing for being able to pump your, your abs up. And, <laughs> and the thing was bent like a, a kind of a wave and you'd lock your arms in this thing. So you could, you could just, put it right there and just lock and I'd sit there and for a while I'd sit there and I'm like ah you'd start shaking and you'd see that little gyro just starting to move just a little bit and I'm like holy shit this is sand you know she she has no foundation and then I showed you know the tests to Gabrielle and he goes what is that that looks so cool and he goes it's not handheld what is that so it's this crazy gyro stabilized device called the Movi and it was you know kind of made out of carbon fibers and there was really no it was revolutionary but at the same time it was so unfilmmaking friendly you know it's like When you think about a remote head, you think about, okay, if you set it there, it's going to stay there. Well, no, this thing drifts and, you know, because it's a gyro, it's constantly moving. That's what makes the thing cool. Well, then I just took that and said, that's going to be our capture. That's what's going to deliver her emotion because you'd sit there in a shot and you're majestic mode and then all of a sudden this thing is start panning like this and you're, oh, oh shit, I got to correct it. Oh, 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 it's tilting up a little bit. No, it's still down a little bit. You know, so you never could be happy with your frame. And, and when I showed Gabrielli that, he's like, that, that's it. That's Amanda. And it was kind of like, okay, see, it's like you got to understand the tech to present it to the to the director, and then they look at it and say, "Oh my God, this is going to be the the camera emotion of our character," and that's where you know when when Act of Valor came in, and and we started to share knowledge when we created the Hurl blog, and we got so much knowledge back. I realized that you know a a, a really nice group of us started this DSLR revolution. And we, all of a sudden, people that never had a voice now had a voice. But a lot of people moved on. Lydia and I circled back and said, okay, these people that now have a voice, now let me tell you how to take that beautiful tech and really rock it out. Well, that's been a big, a big part of, of what you've done in addition to all that stuff. Yeah, it's kind of like a service back to the community. Is, is to help people learn how to do, you know, not necessarily exactly what you're doing, but how to how to figure out how to tell their own stories cinematically and in, in doing lighting seminars and and all that stuff. So uh, so how, you're, you're already ta- talking about how that came about. But talk a little bit about like what that how that works today. Well, I mean, what what Lydia and I wanted to do is it's. As an ASC member, as an Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Science member, you know, our job is to educate future filmmakers. I mean, I think it's my responsibility. 
And at the same time, as I want to be able to be an artist and create, there's that responsibility that really laid on me after the DSLR revolution, where I thought, my God, we woke so many spirits up and and engaged so many people to tell their stories, but a lot of them didn't know how to really do it well. They, you know, you'd start to see all these Vimeo feeds of just out of focus and wrong shutter speeds and all this stuff that they were trying their best and they were were, uh, fumbling through the process. And I'm like, well, how can we create kind of an educational resource to educate them on what I do as a cinematographer and share my 30 years of experience with everyone. And this is where Lydia and I created the blog in 2009. And then at 2014, uh, everyone said, we want more, we want more. And then at that point, we created Shane's Inner Circle. And this is a membership site where you learn every nook and cranny of cinematography, of directing, of whole process of being a filmmaker from not only from just the lighting and the tech side, but understanding leadership and longevity and resiliency. And, you know, Lydia and I also do a podcast together for all the members and she really weighs in on the lifestyle and how do you survive in this business and how you have a very long successful career and how you manage your family and balance all that and health as well and working out and taking good care of yourself and eating right and what uh, nutrition and juicing or you know she's always got me on these goddamn cocktails i i'm like the i'm like the rat uh in the lab right she's like yeah i just uh, read about this guy down in san diego he's got some brain food and i'm like brain food what the hell is that it's brains don't eat it it's made of brains so she gives me these things these freeze-dried capsules and everything she's like take two of these at morning and night you know so of course i'm like okay that sounds great so i take them and the next day I, my stomach i'm just like you know, feeling so bad. And then I got this massive headache and I'm like, all right, I'll work through it's, this. It's from your brain expanding exactly. with knowledge and brilliance. <laughs> I'll work through this. I know I can. You know, after week one, I was like, get me off of this shit. It's going to kill me. Right. And she's like, all right. Yeah, maybe that wasn't so good. You know, and then she's like, hey, Poe, you want to try this brain food? And like Poe takes it and she's like, I'm having these, you know, uh, psycho dreams <laughs> at night. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, it's infecting our whole family get this shit out of the house i can see the music (laughs) so i'm like this i taste band-aids what's wrong i'm tasting band-aids but but it's really fun because we banter back on back and forth on the (laughs) podcast about how she tries to kill me each week and then you know i can then pass the stuff that doesn't kill me on to my uh inner circle members oh so now i need to join so i can find out what didn't kill you exactly all right (laughs) (laughs) so i mean the one thing that i think you know off of active valor there was a lot of innovation that went into that and out of that film it generated a lot of third-party gear well we did the same thing on fathers and daughters because that was the first movie that ever used the movie yeah and we used it 70 percent throughout the film 
So not like, oh, we're gonna do this wonder shot where people hand it off here and go through the two and you know go up the stairs and then we clip it onto a piece of string and we rip it, you know, it's like, <laughs> no. This is A, B, C, D, E, F, G camera. This is, I'm yeah. using it as just, you know, uh, if I'm doing a dolly move and pushing into Russell Crowe, it's on the movie. It's a remote head. Yeah. So, well, a remote head. Well, who rem who operates a remote head with a joystick? Nobody in cinema. You use wheels. Yeah. Well, none of that was developed. So I went to a very good friend of mine at Hot Gears, and I had him engineer analog to digital. So I could use the Hot Gears with the Movi. And that's what kind of really started to flip uh, that. And then everyone started to say, wow, we gotta support this thing. People are like, you know, shaken, and the ab blaster can only hold you for so long, <laughs> right? So <laughs> then the ready rig came out, and the Clausen rig, and the anti-gravity rig. Yeah. So all out of this, became the innovation. And it's this kind of, you know, um, process that I, this, that I love uh, in filmmaking because I think it's, it's not burying yourself in the tech, but seeing how that tech is then gonna take the story even higher. Well, that, to me, that's something that's interesting because uh, I, I know we've talked so much about Active Valor, but I remember out of that came all of these rigs that you created, like the man cam and like mm -hmm. all, all of these different rigs that you built. Where does that engineering uh, sensibility come from with you? I think it comes back from my childhood. I mean, my dad was uh, a prof uh, professor's assistant at Cornell, as well as a farmer. So we had like a 250 acre farm uh, that I grew up in upstate New York, kind of near Ithaca. Uh, and it was, you know, me getting up every day. I was on that tractor at 5.30 in the morning and then I'd get off of it and then hop on the school bus and go to school at 7.30, 8 o'clock. And then I'd play sports till 4.30. I'd get back on the tractor at five o'clock and I would be doing my homework on the tractor while I dragged, plowed, or harvested whatever the hell I was doing until mm -hmm. 11 o'clock at night, and then I'd do it all over again. And it was, my dad was the kind of guy who could make something out of nothing. Like, did you have like a metal shop or a wood oh, shop? Oh yeah, we yeah. had everything. We had, you know, oxyacetylene, we had arc welders, we had, <laughs> you know, we he would, one day, we we were out in the by the the barn out back. One of our well, it was the sap shed because we made maple syrup as well. And we were out there and we were playing with black powder and we jammed black powder into this big ass pipe and we blew it up by putting one copper wire across it and then dead circuiting it into an outlet. And it fried the copper wire, blew up the black powder and basically created this massive bomb that we put inside of an old chimney and it blew the chimney all to hell. So we we're like, wow, this is cool. Now, when we blew the chimney all to hell, it created, we found this old sewer pipe and we're like, oh my God, if we take this sewer pipe and we put the black powder in the back end, we could create this cannon, right? And we're- Please listeners, don't do any of this. <laughs> we're sitting in there welding it and all this stuff. And my dad walks by and he goes, what are you doing? And I'm like, dad, we, we just blew up that chimney out back. And uh, now we're, we're thinking we can make a cannon. He goes, that thing's gonna need legs. <laughs>
<laughs> so you were you were learning from an early age how to take a perfectly awesome idea and improve it always. Always. So he, sure enough, he went out there and he got a couple pieces of metal and he welded these uh, legs onto the damn thing. And he goes, you know what? I remember Charlie, you know, his dad. He goes, I remember he had some of those lead weights. And I'm like, where? He goes, over in the barn. So he walks in there and he's going through all the stuff and he finds this pear-shaped lead weight that weighed about four pounds, just like a goddamn cannonball. So we put the black powder in there, we stuffed the thing down there, we dropped the thing in there, and that thing, when it went off, that pear-shaped weight was rising at 400 yards heading for the woods. And all we heard was cracks as it goes through the woods. And he goes, now that's a cannon. <laughs> because my dad was a huge Civil War buff. We went to every damn Civil War battlefield in America. Like I went to Gettysburg eight times. I stormed. I did Pickett's Charge. You know, we, we went to Vicksburg and saw the siege. We went to Antietam. You know, wherever it was, we went there. And it was, I mean, it was the kind of thing where... <laughs> When we, when we made that cannon, that cannon then went everywhere with us. So it's like every soccer game, we would blast that cannon off before the soccer game. We wouldn't have anything in it. It would just be a big explosion, yeah. right? Oh, what we got into was pretty insane. We were... Uh, so that's where my ingenuity comes from. <laughs> <laughs> the primal need... To blow things up. <laughs> exactly. And honestly, I think that's... I can't think of a better place to end uh, the podcast. <laughs> Shane, you have not disappointed. This is this is awesome. Uh, before we go, where can people find your work online? Uh, you can go to shaneherlbutt.com. That's where all my reel is and everything. And then uh, the Hurl blog at... Uh, uh, the Hurl blog theherlblog.com and then uh, if you're looking for cinematography education uh, like no other uh, it's really something a, a very a passionate project for me to really uh, educate the future filmmakers of tomorrow and that's you get it all at shanesinnercircle.com so everybody check out shanesinnercircle.com uh, I hope, hope we get you a little bump here and uh, thank you so much for coming on here I can't oh you're you so welcome thank you all so that was Shane Hurlbut, and holy crap, uh, lives up to the hype every time. I could listen to that guy talk all day long. Good, because we cut three hours out of that interview. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> no, uh, I'm kidding, but we are very much looking forward to having Shane back on the show. Yeah, Shane's a, a legend, and he's amazing, and he changed my life, and uh, he's one of my heroes, and I'm so excited we got him on here. All right, so Ben, uh, we got a pretty, well, you know, it's really hard to follow Shane, so we didn't want to have another cinematographer follow Shane yeah. instead uh, we have another legend in his own right he knows everything about cinematography and he's not a cinematographer he's a film critic but he's a legendary film critic. he is a legendary film crit critic literally wrote the book on cinematography and many other books and many, many other books, many yeah. thousands of other books and has an awesome podcast that you can also listen to and I will put all of that in the show notes so without further ado here is the war story by Leonard Maltin Boom. <laughs> and now, war stories. It must have been five or six years ago, I went to a press screening on the Warner Brothers lot, one of their screening rooms. 
And the film was about to start. The house lights went out. When the movie began, it was in the middle of the film. And everybody realized it right away, including the projectionist. They put up the house lights. A publicist said, we're so very sorry. We'll fix this in just a moment. Be patient. Didn't take long. The lights went out. And I turned to the guy next to me, a total stranger, and I said, hey, we're watching 35 millimeter. I don't think he understood what I meant. But what I meant was, you can't show a DCP out of order. That had to be a print we were watching. And I became sort of nostalgic for the idea of watching a print, even though it had been shown mistakenly. I stayed to the very end because I always read the credits. And I saw the projectionist who I'd known casually. He was mortified. He said, I've never had that happen in 25 years. I said, don't, don't worry about it. It was fun. I knew I was watching a print. And now, short ends. So that was Leonard Malton's war story. Look forward to Leonard Malton in our next episode uh, for, for his full interview. Fascinating guy. So, Ilya, it's time to pay the bills. That's right. Bill paying time. So, hey, uh, Aerie introduced something really cool at IBC this year called the OCU1. Uh, Aerie, of course, wonderful sponsor of the program, has come up with a teeny tiny uh, FIZ. And FIZ is actually a acronym, uh, F-I-Z, which stands for Focus Iris Zoom. It's a little controller that allows someone to adjust a lens remotely without having to touch the lens, which... You wouldn't know this from, uh, you know, it's not necessarily intuitive, but uh, sometimes really important to not touch the lens or to have someone else have remote control of a lens during uh, making a movie. It is a uh, interesting little knob and it's got a cool LCD display on it. And basically this uh, little device called an OCU-1 will control three motors at, the, at your fingertips and uh, there hasn't really been anything like this out there made for professionals. So, Ari, again, just blazing a trail in uh, lens control in a way that, you know, nobody else would even think to make this product. And uh, But I guarantee you, now that they've made it, there's a bunch of people who will be going, hmm, that's pretty interesting. That's, that's a cool that. idea. And now I've learned a new term, and that's fizz. Fizz. Yeah, no, it's not, it's not the bubbles in your drink. It is focus iris zoom. So, thank you, Ari, for making a fizz controller. All right, Ben, it's uh, time for short ends. All right. You want to go first? You want me to go first? You go first. All right. My short end this week is the completion of the Orson Welles uncomplete, like Orson Welles's final masterpiece, The <laughs> Other Side of the Wind. Oh. Which I think I first heard about around 1997 when I started becoming very interested in Orson Welles. That was when I tracked down F for Fake on VHS. And um, maybe it was around then that I heard that he'd made a movie in the 70s. Um, so as it turns out, it was between like 1971 and 1974. It stars John Huston and mm. Peter Bogdanovich. Whoa. Um, and it was unfinished from 1974 till like a few months ago. So here's, here's the short version of what happened. Some of their money came from the brother-in-law of the Shah of Iran. When, the, when Iran fell in the late 70s, all of the assets of this movie were seized by the Iranian government and they were kept in a, uh, like in a vault in, 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 uh, France. Hmm. 
Now, Orson Welles had cut some work print and there were like some work print scenes that had circulated about the movie, but uh, there were there was no completed version of the movie. And uh, for years, Peter, but firstly, Orson Welles, when he was still alive, tried to get the film finished, tried to get like Iran wasn't holding it for a political reason. They just wanted the goddamn money. Hmm. So he kept trying to get people who would buy it out, you know, just get it out of hock. And it never happened during Orson Welles's life. Of course, he died in what, 1985, 1986. Right. Um, and so Peter Bogdanovich tried to finish it. And apparently he had made Peter Bogdanovich promise that he would finish the film if he if he couldn't him, himself finish it so years and years have gone by and there were also uh lawsuits i believe between uh oya kodor who was orson wells's you know basically partner uh girlfriend for the last whatever 30 years of his life and orson wells's wife uh and well i think his his wife was uh no longer with us but his daughter so there were there were all these different legal entanglements and it took forever to get all of these elements and the only place that could do it really was Netflix. So Netflix got all of this out of hock and paid to finish Orson Welles's classic. To me, the weird side of this is that Netflix being Netflix about it, like just one day, there's the other side of the wind. I mean, like they got some press, like you could read about it in the New York times or whatever, but it was like no fanfare. The final movie of Orson Welles completed. Um, and it is, banana pants it's definitely worth seeing for people who love orson wells but it's sort of like a skate it's like him taking apart what a filmmaker is and the name of the movie refers to a film within a film so the so john houston plays an old film director who's making his final film and the movie he's making is called the other side of the wind and it is like almost a a humorless parody of an antonioni film wow it, and it's gorgeous. You watch it, you're like, Orson Welles could just do anything. Like, he, 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 was, he was brilliant. And the, the frame outside the movie that, that uh, John Huston and Peter Bogdanovich are in, I look at it and I'm like, you know, you know when you first saw JFK, the Oliver Stone movie, and you're like, look at the crazy editing and the way he's using different formats. Orson Welles did that in 1971. The film mm. just never got finished. But it, but it has a very similar feel to sort of what Oliver Stone did in movies like natural born killers. And it was shot by a guy named Gary Graver, who was um, Orson Welles kind of dedicated cinematographer for the last, you know, the last many projects of his life. Uh, and Gary Graver apparently tried to finish the movie. So in addition to the other side of the wind being on Netflix, they made two documentaries. One's called they'll miss me when I'm dead. And the other one, you kind of have to like, if you go to the other side of the wind page on Netflix, it it's under trailers and more. It's just a documentary about how they restored this, all this footage, which included like John Houston's audio tracks. A lot of them were lost. So they brought in his son, Danny Houston, who does a perfect impersonation of him to, to ADR John Houston's (laughs) voice. Uh, That's incredible. It's, it's just a fascinating movie and I'm excited that I got to live to see it. Like it was something that I've been wanting to see for a long time. I don't know that it will appeal to people who aren't already fans of Wells um, because it's so eccentric. So, Aren't fans of Wells's what Touch of Evil and uh, Citizen Kane, or aren't fans of Wells's like uh, Transformers the movie? Which which part are you? Talking uh, I'm about? talking about Wells as a director. So I would yeah. say you know Citizen Kane, Magnificent Ambersons, Touch of Evil. Um, you That's know, a lot of people. A lot of people really do chimes like at midnight. Yeah, like and actually the documentary about about Orson Welles is. I mean, there's several documentaries out there about Orson Welles, uh, but the documentary about him is 
pretty interesting because I mean it deals with the struggle to try and get this film made but it also just kind of deals with the struggle that Orson Welles himself had and talks about kind of how ingenious uh, he was as a filmmaker I mean I feel like he's one of those people who got run over by the Hollywood system because he was definitely he was proclaimed a genius at 23 and and washed up by 27 and you know still had his best work ahead of him like there's a quote in there in the documentary that says that you know everyone says Citizen Kane is the best movie ever made but it's not even the best movie Orson Welles ever made agreed yeah I, I for my money I love Touch of Evil that's the that's the one I love Touch of Evil and actually after watching this I haven't seen Chimes at Midnight and I want to see it I like I have a lot of his movies on some format or another like mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of F for Fake mm-hmm. which is a it's the oh, last wow. finished movie that he released in like 1972 also shot by Gary Graver um uh, I'm a big fan of that, um, but like, yeah, Touch of Evil is great. Um, the Trial, the the adaptation of Kafka's The Trial is really good. I don't think I ever saw that. Um, Mr. Arkadin is kind of a rehash of Citizen Kane, but it has some really interesting things. But the thing is that nobody, for my money, ever beat Orson Welles at being an innovator visually. And when you watch The Other Side of the Wind, you know, you, you're looking at a guy who was... Uh, yeah, he's probably in his 60s when he made it. You watch the documentary about the making of it. It's like he made that movie with like half a dozen people. Um, and, uh, and I mean, like really there was almost no crew and they were all like in their 20s. And it was a very indie film kind of a kind of a vibe. Hmm. And and he really was like he really was trying to take the piss out of Antonioni right down to they shot most of it at the house that was like adjacent to the house that Antonioni blows up at the end of Zabriskie Point. So anyway, yeah. so that is my very long short end. And I hope a lot of people will, uh, who are listening to this will check out the other side of the wind. It's a, uh, it's a weird time capsule because it's like very much a product of its time. And so a lot of it feels weird and dated in its own way, but it also feels like miles ahead of its time when you think of it as a movie that was made in the, in the early seventies. And, and, uh, it, it, there's just something so so brilliant about it, and it's fun watching you know John Huston and Peter Bogdanovich, who are both like master directors themselves. That's right, playing directors, <laughs> playing movie directors. Uh, well, uh, I just think it's amazing that there's a Orson Welles film to be seen in 2018 that the world has not really seen before, and it's on Netflix. You literally can just go like, oh, no fanfare, but there it is in the in the list. Yeah. The other side of the wind. I know, like we're so used to like movies having like a big buildup and a mo- and and I no feel bus stop campaign. Nothing. I mean, well, I mean, I feel like they were uh, really pushing the haunting of Hill House, mm-hmm. a yeah. perfectly fine series, um, like right when that came out. But to me, like it, it was one of the big uh, cinema moments of 2018. But they spent a lot more time promoting Fuller House, <laughs> <laughs> or oh god, what was the uh, um, Hemlock Grove? Hemlock. Hey, don't be down on Hemlock Grove. Hemlock Grove just had, let me tell you, I couldn't turn on Netflix for a while without a giant, like, uh, dire wolf with an arm coming out of its gullet or something like that. That's, that was, that, that Fun. was, yeah, that was the, uh, thank you, Netflix, for giving me that, that, that image burned into my the, memory. The one, I forget the stand up comic, but I would turn it, I would turn on Netflix and for like, for like a month, there was some fat middle aged guy who did a stand up special with no shirt on. And that was, <laughs> It, 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 like a bearded guy and it's uh, like I'm not finding this funny it's, Larry the Cable Guy kind of well I mean maybe he would he would flatter himself to say he had the physique of a younger Larry the Cable Guy uh, okay gotcha. um, Larry Larry the high speed internet guy we'll call him <laughs> but every time I turn on, on Netflix there it was and I was like come on Netflix like who who the hell wants to look at this 
if I wanted if I wanted to see an overweight guy uh, with his shirt off, I'd like stare in a mirror. Anyway. <laughs> All right, Ben. So my short end this week is a little bit geeky, but what else is new? So uh, DJI, the company most known for drones, has built a teeny tiny little camera camera and gimbal uh, all in one. And it's about half the size of a cell phone. It's really, really small. Really? And you can shake it all around and it doesn't make the image shaky. It's got one of their very professional gimbals and the camera that's on it comes off of their very professional drones. What size sensor? Uh, small. I don't remember. It's. I mean, it's not. It's not supposed to take the place of a DSLR or something else. What yeah. it is, though, supposed to be is the ultimate blogger, vlogger sort of runaround camera. And the way it works is, it's got a little USB connector and you, or Apple Lightning connector that you plug into the base of your phone. Your phone becomes a screen. There's not a delay the way there used to be with other systems. And uh, you can actually send all of your images as you're capturing them to your phone for live streaming or for podcasting or for any sort of scenario in which you might need to be immediately putting out to a cellular network to get your, you know, live Instagram type of thing out into the world. You, of course, don't have to send it out live. You can record it. You can record it to your phone or the memory card built into it, but uh, really stable and 350 bucks. I mean, Not bad. My, my, my company is going to be selling it, but of course I know that uh, a lot more people are going to go buy it from Best Buy or something like that. It's going to be Amazon everywhere in a couple of weeks. By the time you guys are hearing this, the DJI Osmo Pocket, as they're calling it, and it, and it is truly tiny, uh, this tiny little thing, and it makes a really great looking image. There'll be all kinds of What's I'm the sure. resolution? Do you know? Is it 4K? Oh yeah, it's 4K or beyond. And oh really? It's, yeah, it's uh, it's it's. I think it's at least 4K. Does it to some degree take the place of like a GoPro in somebody's life? Not the not to be down on GoPro. They're still out there. Uh, yeah, it absolutely does. It is a um, it is definitely something that would take the place of a GoPro or take the place of someone's phone or potentially take the place of almost any sort of non really non-professional sort of camera situation which i think is mostly inhabited by people who are kind of doing stuff for youtube or instagram or that sort of thing it is going to be the thing that you throw in your pocket it's got a rechargeable battery and i think also it can be a rechargeable battery for your phone too i think it's got a couple of extra sounds like a a good thing that uh, somebody with a new baby might uh, go film their baby you know goofing off in the park with uh, totally, and it also has a little screen built into it, which other little cameras don't. So like a like Go- well, GoPros do have screens. There's some things, but this is uh, you can shake it all around, and uh, you can switch with the touch of a button to selfie mode or portrait mode, the nine by sixteen mode that some people like, the Instagram sort of mode, or if you want the traditional widescreen, it does all that. And for three hundred and fifty bucks, let me tell you, uh, the people out there who thought, oh, I couldn't get a decent, easy to use four K camera uh, that's stabilized and great for tourism and kind of anything else that you might need a little video for, yeah, those those days are over. Three hundred and fifty bucks, it's an it's an impressive little thing. That's fun. Cool. Yeah. I got a little sneak preview uh, about a week ago and then got in trouble for saying something online. So I'll never do that again. So. <laughs> <laughs> they send the leg breakers over to you. They didn't send the leg breakers, but I got this I got this text message that said, stop posting on the internet. And then I, I was like, oh, I thought the cat was out of the bag. Someone else had posted about it. And they're like, yes, the cat is out of the bag, but stop posting. So uh, so I, I, won't, I won't do that again. I, I thought that it was much more casual with DJI, not like some of the other companies, but... But no, uh, turns out it wasn't so bad for me. Someone at Best Buy, I guess, leaked it, and it went really wide. So, uh, but now it's out, and uh, we can talk about it. So sweet. Well, that sounds cool. Put that in your uh, 
Christmas uh, wish lifts. <laughs> you could probably fit a dozen in your stocking. They're tiny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, Ben. Hey, that does it for episode 27. Uh, <laughs> I got, wait, 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 wait. I, I totally, I, I, I where it. can, okay. where can people find you online, Alia? Uh, they can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras at hotrodcameras.com. Uh, you can find me as always at benrockonline.com or uh, anywhere uh, that you do social media except Snapchat because I'm apparently over the age limit. You yeah, must be but, younger than this to understand Snapchat. Yeah, I think it's 14. Yeah, so uh, but you can find me. I'm at Neptune Salad on uh, on on the Twitter and I'm on Facebook. I'm everywhere. I'm everywhere you want to be. Uh, also, uh, before we go, we want to th- again thank uh, our awesome producer, Alana Cody. That's right. Uh, Alana, thank you very much. And uh, we got to thank our editor, Ben Katz, who put together the interview for uh, Shane Hurlbutt. I know that was uh, and, so, and also work. the epic war story, because that was epic, yes. that was quite a Herculean effort. And I was very impressed when I heard his work on that. Kay Zalatrachi, who I'm convinced doesn't listen to this uh, show at all. Yeah, if everybody would like, uh, uh, go to his website, which is musicbykays.com, and just like go to the contact or whatever, and like besiege him with like inquiries about projects that you're working. Your music's on. awesome. Yeah, I heard it on the Cinematography Podcast. A hundred percent of the music that you heard on this was by Kay Zalatrachi. He's an amazing composer, and if I haven't said it before, I'll say it now. He's also an awesome VFX artist and color grader. That yeah. guy can do everything. If you needed any of those skills, that's your guy. Kays is quickly making us all obsolete. Anyway, <laughs> so that was episode 27, and thank you very much. We will see you soon for episode 28. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.